Bernadotte, Salt, Udino, Suchet, Massena, Mortier, Ney. And shed loads more French names that I'm only going to butcher. Do you know what I'm talking about? As viewers of this show, you probably do. These are the French marshals, the men who commanded Napoleon's armies from 1804 to 1815. Napoleon appointed 26 of them during his reign. Why, I thought this was redcoat history. Why are you talking about the cheese munchers? All right, mate, calm down. It's always good to learn about Britain's enemies, especially when they were thumped by Wellington. I mean to give the French a damn good thrashing. For anyone who doesn't know, the British Army fought the Peninsular War in Portugal, Spain and France between 1808 and 1814. It was there this guy, Sir Arthur Wellesley, later the Duke of Wellington, cemented his reputation as arguably Britain's greatest ever general. Today is the first ever Redcoat History live stream. I'm a bit nervous, so do bear with me. I'm joined by John Viscardo, host of the Generals and Napoleon podcast, who's going to talk about those French marshals who fought in the peninsula. John, how Hello, are Chris. you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on the show. This is fantastic. I've been on a couple of podcasts now. That's the best intro I've ever had. So thank you for that. <laughs> Excellent. Glad to hear it. Well, John, just quickly, this is your moment to shine. Tell everyone who you are, what you do, and uh, if they like what they see today, how they can hear more from you. Yeah, I have a little podcast called Generals and Napoleon, as you can see from my lovely shirt. And it's just mostly about the people who serve Napoleon, not so much Napoleon himself. So uh, the topic today is right up my alley. We were talking marshals. I love talking about any of Napoleon's 26 marshals. They're all interesting guys. They all had a lot of uh, highs and lows. And uh, I think your audience is going to join this episode. This should be fun. Brilliant stuff. Well, we're already getting comments coming in. Cam Simpson, friend of the show, who woke up at 5 a.m., I know that for a fact, in Australia, says morning mate from Cam. I'm hoping he's still in his pants as he's watching. Uh, someone called Loetz Collector says, when I got the announcement, it said Wellington's, and it looks like the word penis there. So I think there's a bit of a mistake there, but uh, rather amusing. Good evening, everyone from Mystery J04. So talking of mystery characters, guys, we've got a second guest coming today. Let's see if I've got the right, uh, the right noise to introduce the man who I see as the goat of British military history of this, of this era, at least certainly on Twitter, he's the GOAT anyway. Let's bring him in, hold on a minute, and a bit of applause. <laughs> Guys, up, up this side, the one and only Marcus Cribb. So we know we're in for good fun today. We've got John, who's gonna hopefully tell us a good story, and me and Marcus, who are basically just gonna rip the piss, have a good time, and tell him why, why British generals bested French marshals every time. <laughs> um, Marcus, good how evening. are you, Thanks, mate? Everyone. I'm really good. I'm still looking for this uh, this goat. Um, no, great. Thank you so much for having me on. And uh, it's great to see two friends of mine from podcasts uh, in one digital room at the same time. So this is going to be really good fun. Brilliant stuff. Well, mate, just quickly, this is your moment. Tell everyone who doesn't know you where they can find you in the future uh, going forward and a little bit about your own background and why you're, why you're qualified to speak on these topics. 
Yeah, so I was the manager for several years of Apsi House in Wellington Arch, Duke of Wellington's London home and memorial. And uh, it led me into a rabbit hole of Napoleonic history, which I now headlong into. Love it, as you say, Twitter. But I started Battlefield Guiding, now at Waterloo five times, uh, maybe a few more, uh, and have Peninsula War Tours coming up and more at Waterloo. And that's probably where I'm going to spend a lot of time. I'm writing my first book and uh, love doing anything I can, Napoleonic, as much as possible around the day job, really. Brilliant stuff. Well, look, I'm just going to look at the comments. We've got one from Ivan Sordo. Let me see if I can bring that on screen. Uh, I know Ivan from Twitter. Can you see that on screen there if I put it up? Good afternoon from San Francisco. Good afternoon to you, Ivan. And we've got another one here. Oh, Noah Gibson's already jumping straight in with some, some, some detailed talk here. He said, Salt is a talented guy from, from Russia who gave Wellington a run in 1813. Well, I'm not sure about that. We'll chat about that later, but thanks for getting involved already. Bill Stevenson, he says he's playing hooky from work. Man after my own heart. If you can ever find me at work, which is not too often. All right, brilliant stuff. Well, look, let me switch to John. John, first off, I want to ask you the key question. What actually is a French marshal? I know this seems a silly question, but we talk about marshals. But what actually is one? Can you explain? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. Um, a marshal, people kind of get confused with it. It's not really a military rank. It's more of a military distinction. And it was first awarded in the 12th century in France by, uh, I think it was King Philip II. And over time, you know, kings would award generals who had a great performance or an exceptional achievement in battle or war and give them this baton and make them a marshal. The baton was a, I don't know, about this this long and it was like a blue, uh, like velvety wrapped stick that basically showed that you were a marshal of France and had a Latin inscription that said, terror and war and ornament and peace. Now, there was a ton of marshals made up until the French Revolution. At that time in 1789, you know, the principles of egalitarianism and equality of the French Revolution didn't necessarily jive with having these guys who were above and beyond anyone else in the military. So they got rid of it until in 1793 until Napoleon came around in 1804 and reinstated the marshalling. Why did he do that? Two reasons. One, the army was kind of fragmented at the time. There were some who were Republican generals. There were some that were Royalist generals. There were some that you know really believed in Napoleon. So in an effort to kind of unite the French army, he made 18 marshals of the empire in 1804 and gave them this prestigious title. Uh, the second point of making all these marshals was that Napoleon realized he could not be everywhere at once. So these guys were kind of like his viceroys or his warlords. So as Napoleon's empire grew and extended outward, Napoleon kind of left it to be run by these, these marshals. And some did a good job administering, uh, like Marmont. Some did not, like Massena. But that's kind of the quick thumbnail sketch of what a marshal was. Okay, fantastic. Well, I'm going to bring Marcus in here. Because, Marcus, obviously you know a lot about the British army of this era. Hmm. What would be the British equivalent of a marshal? Would such thing have existed? Like, how would we how would we compare? Uh, so we can compare in two ways. So we had it very much as a rank. Uh, we had field marshal, uh, which is you know an equivalent. It's the highest rank in the British Army, uh, and also carries a baton ceremoniously. 
but also it would be the senior ranks uh, in the field. And so you'd get devolved commands. Field marshals are few and far between. Uh, Duke Wellington, for example, being one by the end of his career. Uh, but he spent a lot of time at different various general ranks. So we had Brigadier General, uh, now Brigadier. Uh, we then have Major General, Lieutenant General and General. Confusingly, Major General's lower. Uh, and that's because if you don't know, going back, it actually used to be Sergeant Major General. Uh, so then that was abbreviated uh, down. So uh, it would be then whoever was the most senior in the field. Uh, and if there was confusion or disagreement, it would be whoever was promoted first. So it does sometimes lead to um, some kind of very confusing changeovers. For example, uh, Wellington, uh, Wellesley, as he was, losing command after the Battle of Romero and then subsequently replaced and replaced. So uh, we don't have that clear cut you're a marshal, you're devolved and go off and do your own thing. Um, you know, we have a very clear rank structure. Napoleon, for the example, you know, he brings it in because he wants to promote his friends, maybe. Uh, yeah, so it's a slightly different way we've got to it. Fantastic. Well, talking of promoting friends, we are going to get to one of those characters a little bit later. But before we crack on, John, I wanted you to explain the premise of today's episode, for anyone who's just joined us, is we're looking at the French marshals of the peninsula. And I said to you, John, at the beginning, maybe you could choose three you want to talk about in detail. And of those at the end of the episode, you're going to tell me who you think was the best of those three. So before we yeah. begin, can you give us a sense of why, what, what the, for you, why those three people we're about to discuss were chosen? What was your, you know, what were the prerequisites for you that these three are the ones I want to talk about? And then briefly, who did you leave out and why? Can you give us a sense of, a sense of that? Sure. Yeah, a number of uh, Napoleon's marshals served in France, uh, excuse me, in the Peninsula War. It was a long war, I think 1807 to 1814. So a lot of marshals were placed there, including MacDonald, Victor, Ney, Saint-Cyr, uh, Augereau. A lot of those were not in Spain very long because they didn't perform well. And, and Napoleon had no problem sacking uh, marshals or generals or friends who weren't performing well. He expected miracles. He expected victories. He did not expect losses. So I picked those three because they were probably, I would say, the top performers of the marshals that were there. I mean, Ney did an okay job, but he just didn't believe in the, uh, in the whole enterprise. He wasn't big on uh, conquering a country just to loot it or just to evict, you know, trade partners of England. Um, so I picked Marmont, Soule, and Massage because they probably had the most epic confrontations with the British and the Spanish and the Portuguese. There is one name that we've left out that I think people might be surprised about, which was Suchet. Yep. Was that we just because Suchet. he was over on the east and he kind of gets forgotten, or is there more of a reason that you didn't want to include him? Yeah, I'm glad you brought him up. Uh, yeah, he was over in the east. He was closer to... The border with France, so he didn't have to deal with as many uh, logistic problems as some of the other marshals did. He also didn't have to go up against the probably top 10 generals of all time, the Duke of Wellington. It, it was kind of funny. Neither one of them wanted a piece of the other one. Suchet wanted, wanted nothing to do with Wellington, and Wellington wanted nothing to do with Suchet. So they kind of wearingly eyed each other, but they, they never engaged in battle. That, that sounds a little bit like uh, modern-day heavyweight boxing. <laughs> You've got the greats. They'd rather not fight each other. Yeah, indeed. Uh, do you agree, Marcus? 
Yeah, I think Suchet came up quite a lot in some of the uh, previous chats and social media that I've seen already about tonight. And uh, yeah, they didn't they didn't line up, uh, you know, toe to toe to carry on the analogy. I'm going <laughs> to run short there, I'm afraid, Chris. Love a good um, love a good so, boxing analogy. I try, I try, um, but they didn't, you know, they didn't square off. So it's difficult to make those comparisons. And, uh, you know, to, to carry on those, you know, Wellington does throw left and right hooks at lots of different big Loving names it. that Loving come it. up, including, I'm trying, uh, including, <laughs> uh, you know, Ney, he gives a good uppercut to, uh, which is uh, kind of John's man. Uh, so uh, yeah, there's, it, what's interesting about doing it from that angle is that we can actually compare some of the really big names and really talented generals, uh, but they have very different uh, styles and commands outcomes uh for their careers as well brilliant well well look the biggest question i have we're, we're going to start with salt but the biggest question i have is how do you pronounce his name i've heard it sue soul salt john i think this is one for you mate you 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 strike me as a man of uh, sophistication who will probably be able to tell us exactly how it should be pronounced oh boy a lot of pressure i i <laughs> i need my uh my podcasting buddy Lafayette Pod to help me out with this, but I think it's Sult with a, with a T is pronounced. I have heard it other ways as well, but uh, I'm going to go with Sult uh, in terms of pronunciation. Okay, makes sense. Well, in that case, why don't we crack on? Actually, I think let, we're going to start with Sult. I think why don't you give us a bit of a potted history? Let's say five to ten minutes maximum of his background, you know, where he was from, his early days in the army, and, you know, his his career up until and including the peninsula. We can keep it quite tight, and we will take questions, guys. So if anyone, uh, I can see these comments coming in. Rachel Stark says, Spain was a graveyard for many marshals' reputations. Very true. Uh, what else have we got here? Miles Abbott, watching from the start. Loving it, lads. Thanks for all the work you do. Well, thanks to you for watching, mate. And then a couple of comments that it's such a shame that um, Suchet and Wellington never actually met in battle. So, so there you go. Yep. So yep. let me pull up my graphics. Here we go. So I'm going to let you go for it, John. Here's a bit of background information on salt, and I'll try and bring up the, the, the right slide at the right time. There you go. Rachel's saying salt with a T. Thank you, Rachel. Right, John, <laughs> John, take, take it away, mate. We, we will interrupt you, probably mock you from time to time, uh, drop in a few comments, but you go for it, mate, and we'll, we'll wing it and see how it goes. Yeah, please interrupt. And, uh, you know, people watching, if I screw something up, please comment so I can get it right. Brilliant. Before yeah. we begin, I just think we need a little bit of uh, sound, sound effects. <laughs> Sorry, you can see this equipment is new and I'm a little bit overexcited. So I'll try and stay quiet and let you crack on for a bit, John. Okay. Yeah, I uh, appreciate that uh, sound effect. I don't know how I can come follow that, but uh, I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> Drum roll, please. Yeah, indeed. Um, so yeah, Mar uh, the future Marshal Salt uh, was born, I believe, uh, in 1769, same year as Wellington and uh, Napoleon. He was the son of a notary and lawyer, but uh, not a noble nobleman of any kind. He's just a common commoner and uh, grew up and was probably in line to become a lawyer. He was well-educated uh, like his father. So I think those skills that he learned while he was young did him well as he became a general later on. He was he quick to move up through the ranks. He joined, as it says here, as a private uh, when he was 16 years old in 1785. 
and worked his way up to sergeant. Now, pre-French Revolution, that was as far as he'd ever get. You know, there was no jumping up to officer unless you were a noble. So, you know, he did his best. He he was a really good drill sergeant. And um, in fact, in the camps of Balloon, before the uh, intended invasion of England, they called him Iron Hand or Iron Arm because he was so strict with the training and discipline of his soldiers. So great trainer of men. Uh, he really instilled a lot of confidence in his men. And after the French Revolution, he was quickly promoted up through the officer ranks uh, at the Battle of Flores in 1794. He was probably the one who held the French line together. And that was a slog of a battle. That was a 15-hour battle. And Soult said it was the worst thing he's ever seen, uh, fighting the Austrians in that battle. And there was one instance, uh, and um, Chris brought it up to me yesterday. Um, one of the divisional commanders came running up to Colonel Soult. I think it was Marceau. And he said, hey, I'm, I'm getting caved in by the Austrians. Give me some of your, your troops. I need to uh, launch a counterattack. And Soult was like, no, nah, you know, I'm, I'm working under General Lefebvre. I can't just give you men without checking with him. And Marceau said, give me men now or I will blow my brains out. And Soult was like, classic. I'm, right. I'm not giving you my men. You sound like you've lost your, your nerve or your mind. Just calm down, regroup, and I'll send you a few battalions when I have time. And Marceau listened to Soult, even though he was below, uh, a colonel was below a general, clearly. I uh, listened to Sultan. They rallied their men and they kind of, Flores was a win for the French, but both sides suffered about 5,000 losses and, and casualties. After the battle, General Marceau went and found Sultan and said, hey, you know what? You taught me a great lesson today. I did lose my head and I appreciate you calming me down. So a lot, right off the bat, people noticed that Sultan was smart. He had good handling of tactics and he was calm under fire. Those would all do him well. On the bad side of Soult, he was very greedy. He was tempestuous. He was, um, he could be a bit of a prima donna. And a lot of cases, he thought he was the smartest person in every room. And a lot of cases, he was. But um, he, he didn't work well with others, I should say. Marcus, how am I doing? <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're being quite generous as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, my friend. So yeah, um, after the revolution, he rises swiftly through the ranks, like it says here. He gets to Brigadier General uh, right around the time of the Flores battle. And he doesn't serve Napoleon uh, till quite later. He actually serves under Massena uh, at 1799, the Battle of Zurich, which we'll get into under Massena. But um, those two make a pretty good team, at least initially. Uh, in 1800, as it says here, he's badly wounded uh, helping Massena defend Genoa. And that was a huge, um, I guess, defense of a city that Napoleon needed those troops in Austria, the Austrian troops to be tied down so he could launch an attack and win at Marengo over the Alps in Italy. So that battle, unfortunately for Soult, he was wounded in the knee. I believe he was shot in the knee during a, a sortie from the fort of Genoa. And that, that wound, he was captured and thrown in jail and treated quite harshly. And I think ever since that moment where he was um, a prisoner and treated harshly, he resolved never to be in the front lines. And you say, well, you know, why is that such a problem? The generals of Napoleon were, and the marshals were required to usually work from the front lines so they could see actions real time. Napoleon didn't want anyone in the back and the rear lines getting messages from messengers and 
far away from what was happening real time. After Sewell was wounded, he was eventually released after Napoleon won at Marengo. But after that terrible experience, he never wanted to be at the front lines again. And I think this would cost him because he he was very good at laying out his chess pieces in a battle. He did a great job before battle. But as Wellington once remarked, once the battle started, he never knew quite how to handle his pieces on the chessboard. He never knew how to improvise as Massena did or Napoleon did. So, as I mentioned, um, in 1804, Soult is made one of the first 18 marshals of the empire. He was a key figure during the Battle of Austerlitz. Um, the Protzen Heights, which was the linchpin of the, the Allied line, after the Russians and Austrians left that Protzen Heights to attack Marshal Davout, Napoleon ran up to Soult and said, hey, how long do you need to capture the heights? And Soult said, 20 minutes, sire. So Napoleon said, okay. Let's wait just a few more minutes for all the uh, Allied forces to get off the Protestant Heights, and then I want you to launch your forces up that hill. And Soult did a great job with that. Austerlitz was a huge victory for Napoleon. And um, like it says here, Napoleon was thankful for his efforts both there and in the war against Prussia. And he was made a Duke uh, in 1808, the Duke of Dalmatia. How am I doing, Chris? I think you're doing well, mate. I think we've, we've, we've ripped through that quite quickly. So now I think we're coming to what we really care about is we're getting towards the peninsula. So I don't know if you yes, want sir. to jump in and give us, give us an overview, the sort of, you know, the, the satellite view of his time in the peninsula. Just, just sort of quickly spell out where he was, where he fought. Uh, we don't need too many conclusions now because we're going to have our big sort of concluding thoughts at the end. But just so people get a sense of his career, maybe some of his key battles and how he performed, that would be great. Sure thing. So after Napoleon defeated the Allies in 1807, he wanted a strict adherence to his continental system. And that's great in theory, but Portugal, who Marcus will tell you, is the oldest trading partner of England. It goes back centuries. So Portugal didn't want to end this alliance. So Napoleon sent in Junot, uh, a friend of his, General Junot, to conquer Portugal. He sent in uh, Marshal Soult uh, a few, uh, like a year after that, to chase the English out of Spain at Corona. And after Corona, Soult was supposed to go down and conquer Portugal for the second time, but he got hung up in Oporto uh, doing two things. One, looting, which was his favorite pastime. And two, he he was trying to make himself a, a candidate to be king of Portugal. Now, yeah, he did have delusions of grandeur, Marshal Soult, and I think that cost him here. Instead of doing what he was supposed to be doing, which was capturing Lisbon, he kind of got it in his head that, like uh, uh, Napoleon's brother-in-law, Murat, that he would be made a prince or a king. And Napoleon caught wind of this and said, no, that's not why you're there. You're there to conquer the country, not be king. I make kings, not you. And it's a, uh, it's a that, really strange one, if I may, because um, even some of his own officers didn't want uh, Soult to have this. And there's an episode where uh, one of Soult's aides actually rides down, leads um, intelligence with Wellington saying, can we meet up and basically chat about what Soult's doing? He wants to make himself king. This is really strange. And Wellington meets him purposely out of camp so that this aide can't see Wellington's strength and movement. And they kind of, Wellington doesn't fully agree because he's 
cautious that it's a trap. But his this uh, aide is asking for assurances that if he overthrows, kidnaps or kills Soult, that Wellington will support him and potentially ship them back to Paris, a bit like what happened after Akuna. So, uh, yeah, Soult, uh, kind of his head's too big for his hat uh, quite early. And again, <laughs> like uh, John says, he, he wants to be king, uh, king of Lusitania uh, was the old title. And uh, it leads to this really strange, almost treason. Thank you, Marcus. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was just a weird thing where he thought he could make himself king. But uh, yeah, Napoleon put the kibosh on that. I mean, to be um, fair, these titles are throwing around, you know, Napoleon comes back and everyone's, you know, uh, equal playing field after the revolution. And all of a sudden he's bringing back the Ancien Regime titles. There's dukes again, there's counts, there's princes. And then he's giving, you know, kingdoms away. He makes his brother, you know, the king of Spain and uh, himself, you know, uh, various kingdoms, his son, the king of Rome. So it's not, uh, that's a little bit later, but it's a little, it's not completely bizarre that he maybe wants that. But um, I don't think he wants to maybe rule, I don't think he really wants to rule Portugal. I think he likes the title. I think it's an ego thing, possibly. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So while that's going on, Wellington also is kind of creeping up on Oporto and Sult kind of just dismisses it. He's like, oh, no, we're protected by water. Uh, Wellington doesn't have the boats to sneak attack us. And almost while Sult is sleeping, he gets his butt handed to him by Wellington and he has to go bounding out of Oporto and Portugal without his cannons, without his wounded soldiers, without a lot of his loot, because he was so overwhelmed by the British onslaught. Uh, and so I'm going to come back to that later, but that's one of the reasons why uh, Soult is not my, my favorite number one marshal, but uh, I, I won't ruin it yet. Well, I know someone who might, who might be writing a book about that very subject, actually. So uh, watch this space, I'm guys. I'm trying to be so good. <laughs> He's biting his tongue. Go ahead, Marcus. Go ahead. Go on, no, jump you in, Marcus. It you know you want to. No, you did. I know. I really do. Um, but no, you, you're right. I mean, he literally, he dismisses um, Wellington's on the South Bank uh of the the suburbs and uh he dismisses that as wellington's not going to be able to cross he's uh assured uh, that all the portuguese boats have been taken to the north bank and that they're secure and to summarize you know what's been going on in Oporto is despicable warfare there's been raping murdering looting the, the, the worst crimes that the french army can commit against the civilian um inhabitants there it really is uh disgusting what happens in porto and uh so the portuguese are keen to help and they go out uh, with some boats. They link it up with an intelligence officer. Uh, the men of the Buffs, the 3rd Regiment of Foot Cross, and uh, kind of catch Salt's literally napping. Uh, we think actually he was in bed at the, the during the beginning of the battle. And when they're first spotted on the north bank, he goes, oh, they're probably just my Swiss because the, the French Swiss soldiers wore uh, red jackets. And so, yeah, he leaves without very little. Uh, and uh, he, yeah, famously leaves his loot behind. And then the loot that he does take, including the pay chest, he has to chuck into a ravine. So, uh, yeah, John, John's right there. Porto is a, an exciting one. But he, you know, really quite laid back about the whole situation, thinks he can just walk out with all of his loot and uh, goes back to bed, basically. Yeah, no, brilliant. And if anyone is interested to know more about that, Marcus really is, you know, one of the experts on that. And he's, I hope you don't mind me going on about it, Marcus, but he's currently writing a book about that, that very battle. So uh, watch this space, follow Thank Marcus you. on Twitter if you don't already. 
and uh, yeah, he'll he'll be able to give you even more information on that. It is, I, you know, it is one of Wellington's finest hours, I think. But anyway, we're here to talk about salt. <laughs> Let's not get sidetracked by how amazing Wellington was. I know, you know, Marcus and I are fanboys, to be fair. <laughs> um, John, do you want to carry on, mate, and pick up then? After, after his thrashing at Porto, what happens next? Yeah, he goes bounding up to Galicia, where Marshall Ney is stationed, and... You know, he kind of refits and regroups uh, under Marshall Ney's protection. And he kind of, it was a good blow to his ego. It's probably the best thing for him, quite frankly. Uh, he kind of recovers after that. Uh, in 1809, he kind of defends Madrid, uh, the capital, against a Spanish army and absolutely routes the Spanish army at Ocana or Ocana. And he kind of recovers his, um, his confidence and his, his esteem in uh, Napoleon's eyes. After that, he kind of floats around uh, Andalusia. He's uh, basically a viceroy of southern Spain. Um, he doesn't, like I said, work well with the other marshals in Spain and just kind of is content looting wherever his army is stationed. Uh, in 1811, um, the British are sieging a town called Badajoz. And to re relieve the siege, um, Sult actually launches probably one of the closest run battles the British fought at Albuera. In fact, it's the bloodiest battle. And I think both sides lose several thousand men. And now this wasn't under Wellington. This was under his Lieutenant Beresford, but it was a heck of a battle. In fact, Sult thought he had won it. He said, you know, I pierced their center. I flanked their army. They were, the British were just the worst soldiers in the world. They don't know when to run. And, uh, the Albuera battle, it was almost, I can't even call it a win on either side. In fact, after the battle, Wellington got Beresford's report and said, uh, this won't do, write me down a victory because I don't want the people in England to find out about this battle. So he's still performing well. Um, he kind of, he really rubs King Joseph of Spain the wrong way, who's Napoleon's brother, because quite frankly, Sult knows he's smarter than Joseph and his military advisor, Marshal Jordan. So finally, Joseph gets his way and has Sult sent out of Spain. He goes to the German front to fight at the Battle of uh, Bautzen and Lutzen with Napoleon. But while he's gone, uh, Joseph promptly loses a battle at Vittoria, and the Spanish position for the French army is, um, I guess, compromised to the, to the last, and they actually have to go over the Pyrenees to escape Wellington and his army. So Napoleon sends his fireman, uh, Soult, back down into Spain to retrieve the situation, which he does, and basically fights on the Pyrenees Mountains. He fights Wellington to almost a stalemate. Now, Wellington presses on from 1813 and 1814, but Soult, he's a great defensive general, um, and he really fights, he even fights um, Wellington after Napoleon has abdicated at the Battle of Toulouse. So that's my kind of quick biography of Soult. And now after Napoleon abdicates the first time, Soult goes to work for King Louis XVIII. Of course, Napoleon comes back from Elba. Soult becomes his chief of staff. They lose at Waterloo. Um, and Soult has to flee the country till 1819. But I just wanted to finish there and see if we wanted to just focus on the Peninsula War. Well, I think it's worth 
I think it's worth doing a bit more actually. I would love to just hear a very brief overview because his is a career that went much beyond uh, it the is. peninsula, isn't it? You know, so just give us the sort of the 30 second lowdown of what happened to him. You know, obviously we've got Waterloo yep. and then in his subsequent career, you know, where he basically yep. had a, a whole other career, didn't he? Could you sum that up for us? Yeah, I would say his post-Napoleonic career was the best of any of the marshals. Uh, he works his way uh, to be war minister. He also becomes Marshal General of France, which is a talk about a rare thing. There's more people who've walked on the moon than have been Marshal of uh, General of France. So that's a lofty title. He lives to an old age. He makes all the right moves and steps, which is something Marshal Marmont does the opposite of after Napoleon's downfall. So he carries on, I think, till 1852 or 1853 is when he, let me see when, when he passes. But uh, he really does a fine job. He becomes prime minister of France. Uh, yeah, 1851 is when he dies. And he's revered by the people of France. Uh, he creates the French Foreign Legion, which is a, one of the best fighting forces in the world to this day. So Marshal Soult, uh, I mean, what a career. I mean, from where he started to where he ended. I don't think he could have done a better job long term than he did. Fantastic. Well, I think that sums it up really well. There's one incident I want to ask Marcus about, because I think this is right up Marcus's alley. And I know you spoke about it on your own podcast, John, but I think it'd be nice to hear from Marcus on this. When Wellington and Sult met many years after the Peninsula War, I'll let you pick up the story there, Marcus. Do you know what I'm talking about, by the way? Do you know the I know what you're on? talking about. Yeah, I thought you <laughs> were going to go Harry met Sally then. It was uh, Salt meets Welly. Um, yeah, so they, they do meet. Uh, actually, we think 1814, they certainly their carriages pass and they're in the same room because uh, Salt is um, Minister of War for the, uh, for the uh, Royals of France. Uh, but they meet in London. Uh, so Salt carries on this amazing career, as you say, Prime Minister. And uh, he's invited over for Queen Victoria's coronation, uh, which if people don't realise, the Duke of Wellington is the High Constable of England and uh, is kind of officiating lots of the ceremony. And uh, so he's at that in the room with Wellington. And so then Wellington invites him to one of the banquets he's having at Apsley House. Uh, and it's my old office. And if you don't visit it, uh, let me tell you that there's loads of imagery, loads of fantastic art, including surprisingly loads of images of Napoleon. And uh, that's, you know, shows the influence that he had at the time. Uh, and Wellington does the best he can to kind of remove those items. And so, because his things showing his battle honors and stuff and invites him to dinner. And then when Soultz uh, is there in the same room as Wellington uh, in London, Wellington grabs him by the arm and says, ah, I have you at last. Because of course these men, they fight each other and we often feel, you know, we're comparing A against B, but the, the battlefields aren't big by modern standards. Uh, Waterloo famously, you know, Napoleon gets within about a mile of Wellington, they never meet. But these, these men rarely meet, you know, they're looking at each other through telescopes, probably. Uh, or maybe, you know, the Mark when eyeball from horseback and things like that. So he grabs <laughs> his elbow and says, I, I, we, I have you at last. And they do, they, they dine together at, at Wellington's house. So uh, it's it. kind of nice. I love yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah, no, that is brilliant. And you know what, before before we move on to my mom, I just want to go through the comments because there's there's a lot of comments here. Marco uh, Sareva, sorry for butchering your name, mate, says, hi, guys. Hello to you. Welcome. We've got uh, Nicholas Dennis, or perhaps that's Nicolas Denis. He says Ney was the best marshal. He beat Crawford at the Coa battle. 
Okay. Uh, he goes on to say he repelled Wellington at uh, Redina and Pombal, and he forced he Wellington did. to a draw at Quatrebra. So uh, we don't have to go into great detail, but uh, does does Ney stand up there as the one of the great Peninsula marshals, or is this a bit of an outsider? Uh, no, he's one of the great marshals, uh, I will say. And his performance in Russia speaks for itself. Even if he did nothing else with his martial career, the Russian campaign, he was phenomenal. But I think Spain, it was just, it was hard to get supplies. It was hard to get troops. It was hard to get good intelligence because it was such a rugged country. Uh, the Spanish didn't want them there. So I think Ney did his best, but it was really, really, really hard to succeed in Spain. Okay, and then uh, Jan Lindner, sorry guys, I'm, I'm so English. Uh, he said, and it's, it's a great quote, let me put it on screen. I don't know if this is a mistake or if, is, is Thornister something I should know or is that a typo, do we think, instead of knapsack? It says, each soldier carries a marshal's baton in his Thornister. Oh, it's a Napoleon quote. I thought he in said his, knapsack, knapsack or his... Uh, yeah, yes. yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think that's what he's yeah. saying. But he's basically saying that like, Napoleon kind of said every man's a marshal. Uh, yes, yep. brilliant. It's like every oh, yeah. man, every man, an emperor is um, a common phrase as well. Well, that's and, what and I Marshall, thought it was. Yeah, go on, mate. He's a great, he's a great example of that. I mean, here's a guy who's probably thought, all right, Sergeant Major is going to be the highest I can ever get to, and he becomes not only a marshal, a marshal general of France, which is there's there was probably. Uh, a better chance of getting hit by lightning and eaten by a shark than that <laughs> happening. So uh, I, I congratulate him on, on, on where he rose from. Yeah, no, I, I think that is one of the beauties, isn't it, of sort of revolutionary France is, you know, whatever you think of the politics and, you know, of and Napoleon himself, it was an amazing opportunity for people of talent to emerge and prove themselves and, and get where they should be. Imagine Agreed. Sharp if he'd have been fighting during the French Revolution alongside uh, those revolutionary armies. What rank yeah. would Sharp have achieved, eh? Not just yeah. a colonel, see, that's for you, sure. You see these men kind of go from private sergeant captain and then up to general really quickly. You say, I think we said Salt, you know, within four years. And that's an incredibly quick uh, career that you don't get in most of the rest of the European armies. So um, that does allow uh, certainly some talent uh, to rise. If I was skeptical, I would say sometimes that nepotism, the friendships, kind of people who are closer to Napoleon, um, but that those ones who are talented, rather than being levelled at, you know, sergeant major and junior officers, uh, it does allow that, that kind of, you know, fraternity, um, brotherhoods, egalité of the uh, revolution does carry on through as much as possible. It's obviously a bit of an oxymoron because we have military ranks and orders must be obeyed and chain of command and all that good stuff. But um, it does allow some really good opportunities. And it, I think it's why certainly I'm interested in the marshals. John's, you know, doing a fantastic series on the marshals and uh, the, now the generals. Um, and uh, they, they've got fantastic characters, some of them coming from like the royalist backgrounds and some of them being, you know, little uh, more than sons of peasants and the middle classes. And they would have had very different careers if not for the revolution. Yeah. Exactly. Well, another comment here. Let me bring it on screen. And I believe this is friend of the show who, uh, who's been on the show before, David Snape. He's also an author himself. He says, there's a brilliant podcast on BBC Radio called Real Dictators about Napoleon and his rise to power. They suggest that he uses his marshals as scapegoats when things go wrong. What do we think about that, gents? Hmm. We were discussing yeah. that not that long ago about Ney being a scapegoat for some of... Um 
Napoleon's mistakes at Waterloo, if you want to take that up, John. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. And, and there was flaws in the system, obviously. There, the mar- there was 26 marshals. Um, they all had to listen to Marshal Berthier because he was the chief of staff. But the other 25, they were basically equal rank. So they could do whatever they wanted to and didn't have to listen to the orders of any of the other ones. Um, as far as scapegoating goes, yeah. Um, Marshal Bernadotte mentioned once, I think he captured an Italian town once called Gradisca and Napoleon chatted him. He's like, well, why did you risk that? And Bernadotte said, well, if I hadn't charged and captured this town, you would have yelled at me for not being aggressive enough. So I think Napoleon was just somewhat a, a perfectionist. So they really, it was very hard to please him unless, like I said, you did something miraculous, uh, yeah, they were scapegoated, but sometimes they deserve the criticism, as we'll get to with Marmont and Massena. Fantastic. Right. Well, let's crack on. There's loads more comments that we could get to, but I know we need to we need to move on. And we mentioned nepotism and friendship. Talking of which, let's talk about Marshal Marmont. John, do you want to do you want to jump in with uh, with a bit of a discussion of him? Sure, sure. He's uh, the only one of the three we're going to talk about that came from a, a noble family, a petite noblesse family. His dad was an army officer in the Royal Army. Uh, Marmont was young. He was one of the youngest um, uh, generals and uh, marshals that would come out of uh, the Napoleonic era. He trained to be an artillery officer, and he was a damn good artillery officer, like one of the best, if not the best gunner in the French army. He was also a great administrator. Um and he quickly attached himself to Napoleon. Like he realized serving for under Napoleon uh, in Italy that Napoleon had some great uh, traits, some great intelligence. And they actually became roommates uh, when neither one of them had any money. Uh, Marmont, Napoleon, and General Junot were roommates at one point. So Marmont kind of basically was the whiz kid of Napoleon. He was his protege. And he worked his way up, uh, like I said, through Italy. Um, in the Army of Italy, he worked under Napoleon, helping getting cannons over, as I mentioned before, the Alps for the Battle of Marengo. He worked with Napoleon in Egypt. He was just a really smart guy. Now, the problem with Mar- uh, Marmont is he had a very fragile ego for whatever reason. I don't know why. He was not included in the original 18 Marshals of the Empire, probably due to his youth. Uh, he didn't really have a lot of independent commands either. So Napoleon gave him a corps to command, which is pretty impressive for a young general, but he did not make him a marshal. And I think that stung Marmont quite a bit. And I think his ego, his ego can only take so much abuse from Napoleon. And I think it reached a breaking point in 1814, but we'll get to that. Um, yeah, as you mentioned here, uh, he was, um, helpful to Napoleon during the uh, campaigns of Ulm and Austerlitz. After that, he became military and civil governor of Dalmatia, which is where uh, modern day Croatia is now, that area. Um, He did a great job. He was a phenomenal administrator. He built roads, canals. He improved the economy of that area. Uh, That area hadn't seen new roads since Roman times. So Marmont did a great job of maintaining that area as a territory for France, improving it, in fact, improving it so well that after Napoleon's downfall, the uh, king of Austria came to tour the area after they reclaimed Dalmatia. And he went on a tour with his, his aides. And everywhere he went, um, 
the king would say, well, well, who built this magnificent road? And his aides would say, the French sire. Or who built this magnificent building? And his aides would say, oh, the French sire. After a while, um, you know, the king of Austria said, you know what, that's enough. It's a pity that Marshal Marmont did not have a few more years here in Croatia. He did a great job. Um, after Napoleon set back in 1809 at Aspern Essling, he called troops in from all over the empire, including Marmont's corps from um, Dalmatia to serve at the Battle of Wagram. Did a great job in that battle uh, and was promoted to marshal finally in 1809. But Napoleon being Napoleon uh, gave one of his classic digs and said, between the two of us, I don't know you've done enough to warrant this, this award, this promotion. Now, clearly it wasn't between the two of them because we all found out about it. <laughs> uh, but I think it was, it was like a, almost like a, like a backhanded insult to him. Like, all right, look, I just helped your army win at Wagram. You made me a marshal. You know, do you have to give me a dig? But maybe Napoleon was right because, as we find out later in Spain, he he does poorly. Um, yeah, he. Uh, let's see. He be after eighteen oh nine. He goes back to Dalmatia. He's governing there again. But our friend Massena, who we'll discuss in a little bit, has a setback in Spain and Portugal. So he's uh, relieved of his duties and replaced by Montmont, who arrives in Spain. He's the whiz kid. He's the wonder kid. He's going to do a great job and finally get rid of these British interlopers. However, after some fine maneuvering and flanking of uh, Wellington's army, uh, Marmont kind of takes his eye off the ball and allows his uh, divisions to get too strung out. And what happens is if you're marching a line, you're supposed to maintain contact with the divisions in front of you, but there are gaps opened up because, like I said before, it's a rough country in Spain. And in Salamanca, Wellington noticed this and charged headlong into this gap at the Battle of Salamanca, split the French army in two, and Marmont, before he could react and really fix the problem, was injured by a cannon shot. And it turned into a rout, as Marcus can probably tell you. Well, I just want to interrupt there for one second. I'm going to steal your glory here, Marcus. Do you know what I would say if I was Wellington and I was sat watching that develop and I was just, just having my lunch? You're I'd be just having lunch. That. I'd have a little bite of my chicken, I'd throw it over my shoulder and I'd say, by God, that will do. <laughs> and we'd go for it. What do you think, Marcus? What would, what would you say, mate? I think you're stealing one of my favourite stories, the Peninsula Hall. Um, yeah, and, and that's how apparently it went. Uh, either he stood in an orchard or on horseback. Uh, he spotted the opportunity. And as John rightly said, you know, the, the line was extended. They became strung out. Uh, Wellington saw the opportunity, uh, galloped over the plain, met up with the third division under Ned Packenham, his brother-in-law, and sent them charging in, uh, followed up by uh, the British heavy cavalry effectively and uh, in they went capturing two possibly three eagles and uh, yeah they it was almost a, a complete rout for uh, the French you know uh, Marmont's wounded uh, as John said you know Shrapnel I believe got him in his back and his ribs uh, his second in command is uh, wounded again and if it wasn't for I believe Clausel's rearguard action uh, the British and the Allies probably would have rolled up a lot of the uh, a lot of the French troops into a capture. Uh, I obviously we oversimplify uh, a very complicated but interesting battle at Salamanca, uh, but it's probably Wellington's greatest moments. Uh, Marmont, 
Um, you know, he, he's wounded very early on, so I don't want to you know, criticise him too much. Uh, but he does allow that over extension because he believes where uh, the British uh, 3rd and 7th Division are, uh, that's actually the British baggage uh, moving to the rear and it's going to be a retreat. So that was a bad call on his side. It basically allows that overextension uh, across the plains of Salamanca. Fantastic. Well, I think I think that gives everyone a good understanding of that battle. John, do you want to pick up then? What, what happens to him after that? He's been injured. He loses the Battle of Salamanca. What's next for him? Yeah, he's recalled uh, by Napoleon. And it's sad, too, because he was doing a really good job. But all it takes is one mistake, which was what Salamanca was. And it basically cost him his independent command career. Uh, he does serve under Napoleon in the German campaign. It does a fine job, actually. At Leipzig, he really gives Blücher some fits. Um, but by 1814, Marmont and some of the other marshals kind of see the writing on the wall. They're called the droopy plumed marshals because they used to have these great hats and big plume and, and Marmont didn't really believe in what Napoleon was doing anymore. So Napoleon is off fighting the Battle of France, basically, and is doing actually a really good job. Uh, he's attacking Blücher and uh, Schwarzenberg, um, Schwarzenberg uh, all over France. And he tasked Marmont, Mortier, and Mansi to defend Paris, but doesn't really give them very many troops. It's basically National Guard troops and um, a few uh, regiments. Marmont, again, makes a poor decision, and this is kind of like a motif in his life. He decides to become a politician. He treats with the Allies. He concludes a peace treaty without checking with his emperor. He doesn't tell his men about it, which is god-awful. And he marches his troops into the Allied camp without telling them why, and then tells them to lay down the arm, their arms. Peace has been declared. So that basically ruins Marmont's reputation with the French army. Uh, it doesn't help after Napoleon returns uh, at Waterloo, loses Waterloo, and then votes for the death of Marshal Ney um, after Waterloo. That doesn't really help his reputation. He becomes kind of a pariah, a Judas, if you will. He serves the is royals. It, is his name used in um, a bit of derogatory term now? Because he was the Duke of Ragusa. That's now right. the French yeah. use, uh, you know, if you Ragusa or if you're a Ragusa, uh, that's a bit of an insult. Yeah, it means to betray now in the French uh, dictionary. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Marcus. So, uh, so he kind of is wanders. That, is that fair? Do you think that's fair? Uh, Tough question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably not. It's difficult, isn't it? Murat actually uh, turned on Napoleon first in January. He attacked Prince Eugene's troops in Italy, but that was in Italy. He was trying to hold on to his kingdom, and it wasn't under the gates of Paris. That Marmont did it under the gates of Paris to his own French troops. I think that's what really sullied his name. Then during the 1830 July Revolution, he was called up by the royals again to put down a revolution. His troops, he led poorly, and he had to flee France for the last time and basically wandered Europe as kind of, he was almost like a joke. Like people would point and say, there goes the man that betrayed Napoleon. Uh, he lived a long time. Uh, he visited old battlefields. Uh, unfortunately, he got divorced uh, after the downfall of Napoleon, but he just, he was never able to return to France and, and, 
he was really universally despised. It was kind of a lonely existence for the guy just because he made some really poor decisions. Yeah, it seems really unfair. Uh, we were talking about like the different careers. I just saw a comment there about Bernadotte. And you're like, in the kind of the Game of Thrones, the, that is the Napoleonic War, you know, Bernadotte wins. And yeah. uh, the the fans of Napoleon say that he's the biggest traitor, uh, even though he was given leave to go off and be the king. Well, actually, the, the prince regent, the, the prince, crown prince of Sweden. Uh, but he goes on to become uh, the king of Sweden and uh, Norway and now Sweden and the royal family of that country is still descended from him. And uh, he's called a traitor, you know, Marmont's called a traitor. But then actually those who de declared for the royal family in 1815, then back to Napoleon, then back to the royal family, which one is loyal, which one's treasonous? You know, it's it kind of comes yeah, down to your fair, political It's a stance. fair question. Yeah. It's a great question. It's very complicated times. Um, you have to make good decisions. Bernadotte made great decisions. Soult made great decisions. Marmont did not. General Moreau, if it wasn't for General Moreau, Marshal Marmont would be the worst decision maker of them all. Moreau was god awful. Uh, and um, he was a one of the best and brightest generals in the French Revolutionary era. Um, conspired against Napoleon, tried to assassinate him, escaped to America, came back because he thought Napoleon was on his last legs. And unfortunately, Moreau had his legs blown off, um, some say by a cannon sighted by Napoleon and died on the battlefield. Um, but Marmont, yeah, I, great administrator. I think he just, whenever there was two choices laid in front of him, he always made the wrong choice. Yeah, never good. Uh, just quickly, before we wrap up Marmont, last question. You may have touched on this already, John. Do you think, would he have become a marshal if it wasn't for his friendship with Napoleon? Like, let, let's sum that up. Do, do, was, was there a bit of, you know, uh, I don't know if nepotism is the right word, but you know, that his friendship uh, allowing that to happen, or is that not fair? Yeah, you know, I was looking at the battle records of all these guys before we started talking. Massena um, had a one-loss record, meaning he won 14 battles and lost 11. Soult won 17 battles and lost 22. Marmont had an independent command of only nine real battles. He won four and lost five. So did he deserve to be a marshal? Probably not. But like, like you said, he was friends with Napoleon, but that doesn't mean everything. Uh, Junot was friends with Napoleon. He never became a marshal. Victor was friends, but it took him a while to become a marshal. It, it, just because you're friends with Napoleon doesn't automatically make you a marshal. So Napoleon had a pretty good eye for talent. He knew Marmont was a good artilleryman. He knew he had some skill. I just think he got lazy later in his career, and then he didn't believe later in his career, and that, that, that caused his ruin. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, listening listening to those facts and figures around win-loss win, win records, uh, Marcus yep. knows I'm a big fan of boxing. Regulars who watch this show will know I often present with black eyes, so I still do practice the, the art of pugilism from time to time. But all of those records sound like journeymen. Marcus, what was Wellington's record, just out of interest? If you know it off, you probably uh, don't know off the top of I don't, your head. I don't know off the top of my head, no, because uh, there's always famously this graphic that gets shared on social media every now and again, and it's Napoleon and hundreds of wins, and then Caesar, Alexander, Genghis Khan. And the problem with doing win-losses is often the outcome is not that clear-cut. 
Um, so uh, if we take a battle of Busako for Duke of Wellington, great victory. But the day after, Ney leads an outflanking manoeuvre towards Lisbon, uh, which is fantastic. Wellington has to fall back. But then he's got the lines of Torres Vedras. And then that um, that's kind of starves Massena. So the the clear come outcomes, uh, I'm a bit sceptical of sometimes, you know, war's not that simple, I'm afraid. Um, and, you know, where we look at things like Abu Hera, you know, both sides write that up as a victory, both sides really kind of lost it. Um, so uh, I'm going to say... The, I'm going to take the easy option out and say it's more complicated than that. <laughs> Fair enough. Good answer. <laughs> um, I mean, it's funny. Someone someone wrote me this big, long comment the other day about all the battles the British lost in the Peninsula War. And, you know, it just reminded me talking about about what you're saying about a lot of these battles aren't quite clear cut. I mean, you know, I know, uh, am I right in saying Karuna is one of the battles that's on the Arc de Triomphe and it's on... Uh, you know, British, British colours, and it's yeah. it's 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 one of those where well, either side could claim yeah. to have won. It's it's complicated. Uh, it, it happens all the time. Um, Battle of Redena is held up all the time as a defeat of Wellington, but he was fighting against Ney's rearguard. Uh, so his objective, obviously, is to push Ney off, which he achieves at the end of the battle. Ney's objective is to slow Wellington down, which he achieves. So is it a defeat, or if both sides? it's there's a thing in the armed forces where you have tactical victory versus strategic victory and it gets kind of down to those kind of levels um yeah there's definitely yeah corona the army manages to evacuate under sir john moore who's uh famously mortally killed uh and they manage to evacuate to britain a bit like a, a napoleonic dunkirk and lots of them come back the next year uh, and re-engage in the peninsula war but the french want to push the british army out of Portugal and Spain. So they achieve their aim as well. So um, yeah, history is often kind of, that's why it's so interesting and exciting because you have these really strange arguments. We're still arguing it over 200 years later and I hope people are still arguing it in 200 years time. Exactly. You know, I'm surprised how friendly the comment section has been so far, actually. Not, not too many people angry with us. So uh, maybe that's bad. I don't know. Maybe we should be upsetting more people. Um, no, it's <laughs> good. I haven't been screwing up that much. That's good. That's good. Excellent. Um, so I think we've covered Marmont quite well. Obviously, we'll come back for a final summation at the end when we decide who was the best overall. But I think we want to go on, John, and talk about uh, Andre Massena. Is that right? Is he next on your yeah. list? Yeah, yes, indeed. The dear child of victory, Messina. Fantastic. Um, let me let me pull up the right image of him. There we go. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he was born in 1758, so he's older than Napoleon, which the other two guys weren't really. Um, he was basically uh, born near the border of France and Italy. Um, he was the son of a shopkeeper. Uh, his dad was sometimes a soap maker, sometimes he was a tanner. But it was a commoner birth. It wasn't noble. And it was, um, I don't know, he, he w wasn't sure what he wanted to do growing up. He was a cabin boy uh, on a ship for a little while. Um, and then he kind of became a smuggler uh, for a little while. He sold fruit for a little while. And then he finally joined um, the army. Uh, it was a French royal army in Italy. Uh, he worked his way up um to sergeant and warrant officer which is basically the highest rank a non-nobleman could achieve and he i would say in terms of natural skill uh others will tell you marshal devu is the best marshal but in terms of strategy and just 
you know, not worrying about what was going on on a battlefield and thinking clearly, Marshall Massena was the best. Uh, these quotes are great. Thanks for posting these, Chris. Yeah, fantastic. As they come up, I'm putting them on screen. I thought it would uh, give us a bit of inspiration and, and maybe something to comment upon. And even if we don't comment, I thought they're just good for the viewers to see what people are saying. So sorry for interrupting, John. Please feel free to carry on. Yep. Um, and as it says here, uh, after the revolution, 1789, he works his way up because there's no restrictions on commoners being officers and becomes a general of division. And I'd like Marcus to comment on this because people, you know, a battlefield at this time is a very loud, noisy area. It's hard to see everything. There's cannons, there's smoke, there's muskets, there's horses making noise. People are screaming. Uh, people are injured. And to have a calmness in the midst of this, which Massena had, and I think that's what Napoleon admired most about him, that must have been hard to do, wouldn't you say, Marcus? Yes, and the you know the injuries themselves, especially with the the aftermath of the the medical care, is just horrendous. You know, there's there's no painkillers that are going to be offered except for alcohol, uh, which you know thins the blood, so lots of it's not good for medical treatment. Um, survival rates bad because of that, um, and you know a cannon is firing several miles, uh, just kind of on the speed of sound, so you can see it coming. Uh, it's going to take up several ranks of men. And, uh, you know, we were saying about Salt being behind the lines. These generals are getting to the front lines and exposing themselves to danger. Uh, and, you know, uh, you know, I'm always the first one to criticise uh, Napoleon and things like that. But bravery where bravery is due. Um, putting yourselves out there into uh, either modern or, you know, Napoleonic cannon is horrific. And, uh, you know, there's some really brave men. Uh, we know that several of them suffered from what we say, PTSD, shell shock. Um, and I think the confusion, that fog of battle is real. This is, um, we have smokeless gunpowder today for like shotguns and things like that. The, the smoke, ah, oh, perfect image. Um, smoke was real. Um, you couldn't see it. Uh, sorry, you couldn't see through it. When there was moist days, it would hang down in the valleys. Um, one of the anecdotes I used to tell is when Wellington had a, he only commissioned one painting of the Battle of Waterloo that he ordered done. And when it was done, there's like little puffs of like cotton wool kind of cloud. And he said, oh, good, not too much smoke. Because if you painted a, a battle how it really was, you wouldn't see anything. It'd just be a big grey white mass. And you that's no good for hanging on your study wall. Um, so to be able to, you know, send orders, you need to be able to see it. You have to send out riders uh, with letters and they might get killed en route or on the way back. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really difficult thing uh, to do, both from bravery and also from that kind of command and control logistics uh, way of doing things. So to have calmness, I think, is uh, showing a really big measure of any man. Hopefully no one's too calm that they're kind of um, not affected by it. I think that's the, the other side of things that we sometimes talk about is who... Who's moved? I know Ney uh, had issues and, and Wellington <laughs> did. Uh, so uh, it, it's that balance, isn't it? You you want to be calm, but you also need to keep a, an element of human emotion. Um, yeah, not sure I could do that. Yeah. By the way, before before John cracks on, I think we've got some really good comments here that I want to refer to because I feel Massena is one of those people that people can relate to. He's one of those generals people can relate to, one of those historical figures that for all his faults, and we'll get to his faults, 
he's kind of likable in a weird way, isn't he? And it says here, um, let me put this back on screen. Am I ya says Masena never had a formal education, only learned to read and write at 17, but was an instinctive learner. Natural skill, it's amazing. Is that, is, is that true? Does that fit with your facts, guys? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds accurate. Yeah, um, yeah he, he, his parents were not rich. They had barely had enough to get by. So he, he didn't really get a formal education. He just kind of learned as he went. Uh, he became a sergeant for many, many years and learned on the fly. And I think once talent and, and natural ability were the main factors in getting promoted, Masena worked his way up the ladder. And then in 1795, he, he defeats the Austrians at Luano, and he's probably next in line to become Army of Italy until some guy named Napoleon Bonaparte shows up. <laughs> Never heard of <laughs> him. It, his father was a shopkeeper, and, you know, he was a cabin boy at sea. And the cabin boy, you know, wants to make it to a sailor, wants to make it to first mate, you know, second in command of a ship or, you know, commanding a, a small trading vessel. and doesn't expect to suddenly be... The marshal of you know arguably one of the the biggest and at the time the most powerful armies in the world if not you know europe so uh amazing career and like meteoric rise uh we're going to see lots of films and tv series about napoleon but we don't see it that much about his marshals well one more one more comment on that from rachel stark she says along similar lines of all the marshals masena was one of those with the most inherent Inherent talent for command. I think that's a fair yeah, comment. I, I isn't think it's it? really fair. That's really good um, of Rachel. And Rachel knows some stuff about the marshals. Um, thank you, Rachel. Um, yeah, yeah, he he does. And like you say, he's more he's more likable. Um, if you know, they all they're all out for themselves eventually. I'd say, and that's why Suchet's name comes up because he's not such a bad looter. Uh, but you know, if your power corrupts anyway, so yeah, it's hard to judge from that distance. Let me see if I've got a nice portrait of Masena to pull up. There we go. You see, the, the, I feel like I could have a beer with that guy. I don't know why. I just feel like he'd be quite fun to go to a club with. He, yeah, yeah, he you, could, I, you could pull off those trousers. <laughs> I would love to wear that outfit. I tell you, my wife would hate me, but I would love it. All right, well, next time you're over for a beer, that's, uh, I want to see you wear that. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, look, I've, I've, I've taken us off, I've sidetracked us a bit there. John, where did we get to? And uh, would you mind trying to get us back on track? Sure. Yeah, we're at 1795, uh, 1796, Napoleon's taken over the army. But to, to get back to your portrait of Messina, I mean, he looked like a fun guy, but he was quite ruthless. He could be mean. He could be very greedy. Uh, he would tax anything he could tax uh, that his soldiers would get. He would take a cut of. He hated to give money to anyone, and he loved women almost as much as money. If he if he would have put that much effort into that he did into looting into being a soldier, he probably would have been above the vu or and close to to Napoleon. He just had a natural knack uh, at being a general. Um, yeah, during the Italian campaign, he uh, is a favorite of Napoleon. He performs very well at Rivoli. Um, he helps at Castiglione. He helps um, all of Napoleon's great battles in Italy. And really speed and maneuvering, Messina and Napoleon really see eye to eye on the efficiency of the army and making sure they go and, and work fast. He does not go with Napoleon to Egypt. I think Napoleon had enough of his greediness at that time. Uh, so he stays back, and it's probably a good thing for France that he did stay back. Um, while Napoleon is in Italy, 
uh, or excuse me, in Egypt. Um, the French have many setbacks in Italy. Uh, the Russians and Austrians basically retake everything that Napoleon won in 1796 and 1797. The famous General Subrov absolutely manhandles all of the French commanders. And there's only one army basically between the Russians and Austrians in France, and that's under Massena and Soult in Zurich. And Soult and Massena are just waiting there, waiting in Zurich, waiting for this army, this undefeated army to get to them. And people are saying, oh, you know, there's no chance. Massena's got to get destroyed. Even his own soldiers and officers are kind of like, hey, maybe we should head back to France. And Massena kind of just sits there and kind of like Wellington would do. He strikes like a cobra and absolutely annihilated uh, the vanguard of um, Subarov's troops and sent the Russians reeling. Austrians couldn't help them. And at the Battle of Zurich, I think is Massena's finest moment. Don't you, Marcus? Yeah, he he's, uh, has a fair few, you know, early victories. But I, yeah, I think Zurich is a is a fine example of his talents. And he, like you said earlier, you know, he he's in there amongst the action for lots of it and commanding uh, quite ably. Yeah. So uh, that victory basically ends the second coalition against France. He welcomes Napoleon back, uh, supports his uh, coup for power. And in 1800, he's placed in charge of the Genoa, um, the city of Genoa, as part of the plan to occupy some of the Austrian army while Napoleon goes over the Alps to surprise them at Marengo. He does a phenomenal job there. I, I try to find a parallel to Messina, and the only, only thing I could come up with was General Grant of the United uh, United States Federal Army or Union Army, because it. Messina defeats didn't bother him. Um, his troops dying didn't bother him. He was always ready to go to battle the next day. Uh, the, in the siege of Genoa, he held out for months with basically no food and no reinforcements and no resupply and basically ensured that Napoleon would win at Marengo, even though that was a close battle. So he, he performs very well in 1800. Like I said, he becomes one of the 18 marshals of the empire in 1804. But Masana being Masana, it's never enough. He says uh, one of his friends congratulated him on being one of the 18 marshals. And uh, he said, aren't you excited to be a marshal? He says, you know, kind of gruffly, yeah, one of 18. So he kind of he kind of uh, realized that he is one of the best, but there shouldn't be so many other marshals on the list. Um, he performs well. Again, he's sent back to Italy. Uh, he he's defeats the Austrians there. Um, and he really performs well, although Napoleon gets a little tired of his greediness and at one point actually taxes Messina several million dollars that he had illegally looted from conquered countries, which Messina never really forgave him for. Um, he has created a duke, uh, Duke of Rivoli in 1808. Um, I'm just looking at your notes here, uh, Chris. Uh, oh, sorry. Sure. Let me put it back. There we go. You're good. Um, yeah, in 1808, uh, this is an odd story. Napoleon and Berthier and some of the other marshals go on a hunting expedition, which royalty did in that time. And uh, Napoleon, being a famously bad shot, uh, accidentally shoots Messina in the face and causes him to lose an eye. Uh, obviously, Messina is like, well, who shot me? Uh, that, 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 that was pretty awful. 
and Bertier being the dutiful <laughs> Bertier. A, that's, so, an, that's an understatement. Oh, that was pretty awful. Yeah, <laughs> just lost yeah, it all. Bertier's, Bertier <laughs> takes the blame, so Napoleon doesn't have to. But uh, I think it's pretty much agreed upon in, by historians that Napoleon actually shot him in the eye. And Wasn't am I right in thinking Napoleon was a famously bad shot, or did I miss? Am I misremembering that? No, he was. He was. It's odd though. He was a fantastic gunner. Like if you put a cannon in front of him, he was probably the best in Europe. But you hand him a musket, I, and he was he was clueless. I was wondering that earlier when you said about Marmont being one of the best gunners in Europe. I was like, don't want to don't want to make you choose gunners though. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. Napoleon apparently, like you know, he he would sight guns individually in battle. Even when he was a general, he'd get behind them and sight them. But you know, there's a huge difference between uh, maneuvering a gun and checking the land, and actually hands-on a weapon. Uh, they're two really different skills. So uh, apparently, he was really bad with that. I don't think you know you would get a lot of training in that as in officer school. You know, bit of saber, bit of languages, bit of maths. Uh, not much time, you know, because they didn't really use rifles. Uh, these muskets. So yeah shooting uh possibly would have had shots you know loose balls like a shotgun well and that probably would have taken out parts of his eye uh, rather than you know a musket ball going through and killing uh, a skull so uh yeah it seemed that he probably took a load of shot from uh napoleon and i just love the fact that his his chief of staff takes the blame for it being like oh sorry boss yeah yeah of course yeah typical <laughs> well we'd all do the same though right <laughs> anything to help our careers surely <laughs> yeah, it was oh me. I, I shot him. I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> um, so, John, he's been shot in the face. Obviously, a pretty dramatic wound. He's he's getting on a bit. I mean, how old is he by this point? Um, yeah, he's getting older. Uh, let's see, he's born in 55. He's probably in his fifty, early 50s at this point. So, so his, to, to use an English good. term, he's pretty knackered. Is that fair to say? I don't know what that term means, oh. uh, but yeah. <laughs> oh, American. <Tired>. <laughs> yeah. Marcus, is he knackered? Yeah, he could be quite knackered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Knackered, cream crackered, chin strapped. Yeah. No, no, we're not getting any of these three. Yeah, uh, yeah. No. He's he's get he's he's uh, long in the tooth. He's tired. Uh, we're saying, John, with um, terrible English uh, colloquialisms. Well, so, so John, we've queued it up for you then to, to tell us what happens next. He's been through all of this. He's just been shot in the face. And yeah. now his boss tells him, right, you need to go to, you know, one of the most difficult operations we're currently fighting. We've got, we've got the guerrillas attacking us. We've got this British army who refused to leave. The Spanish are still there. They're still not giving up. The Portuguese are still there. You go sort it out. What, what happens and how does he feel about that? Yeah, um, he before he gets to that, he, he actually performs really well, even though he was recently shot in the face and lost an eye. Uh, at Aspern Essling, you can argue that he did his best work, him and Marshal Lahn, against impossible odds fighting the Austrian army with a river at their back. They did really well there. At the Battle of Wagram, he directed his corps. Um, he was injured the day before the battle. I think he tripped his horse tripped and he got injured, and he had to direct his corps from a carriage which, I mean, it's basically having like a target on your back during an entire battle because uh, people were just lo lobbing cannons at this carriage. But he did a really good job at Wagram. And Napoleon was so impressed with him. He said, look, I, we keep having setbacks in Spain. I need you to go to Spain and Portugal and end this business with the English. And at this point, you know, Massena just wants to enjoy his wealth. He's tired. Like you guys says, he's knackered or old. And he said... Uh, <laughs> 
I'd rather not, boss. I'm, you know, I just want Viagra for you. Can I take a break? And Napoleon said, no, you know, your reputation alone will be enough to finish the business. So Messina goes, he has Ney working for him, who Ney doesn't want to work for another marshal. He has Junot, who's kind of crazy working for him as a corps commander, uh, Rainier, and a couple other people who just didn't like Messina. And Messina opens up by telling his corps commanders they didn't want to be there, which is a horrible way to ask people to work hard for you if you don't want to be there. He also brings along his mistress to Spain. And I told uh, you I liked him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I often uh, take my mistress to work, to be fair. Right. My, coll my right. colleagues don't like it. And the missus you. isn't very happy, but hey. <laughs> yeah. The yeah. chances and of her watching this are almost zero, so I can say whatever I like. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's see if our, our yeah our viewership's going up or down. We can. John and I, um, John and I aren't feeling that brave, are we? <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah. But um. Yeah. The that it's not a good way to endear yourself to your men if you're if you're not commanding at the front and you're basically in the rear with your mistress. It's just not a good example to set. Now, for all of that, he actually does do well initially. He captures a couple couple forts on the borders of uh, Portugal and Spain. Um, Ney and um, uh, Messina are kind of flanking around Wellington, giving him fits. And Wellington realizes, like, this is one of the best generals in Europe. I cannot screw up in front of this guy. So Wellington's very careful with his arrangements. And their first real meetup is at a town called Busaco or Bucaso, however you want to pronounce it. And it's basically this mountaintop that uh, the British have their army set upon. And Messena being Messena says, ah, we can take that. He sends in Ney, sends in Rainier, and it's a loss. It's not a very close battle at all. And that's really Messena's first setback. But like I said, Messena being Messena, he doesn't care. He's like, all right, well, let's, let's carry on. Let's go to the next one. Now at Fuentes de Anoro, Marcus, he does a bit better in that one, if you want to tee that one up for me. Yeah, if you like. Um, yeah, so Fuentes, uh, he, and to be fair, Bisaco, the troops do get on the ridge, and that mountain is as steep as it looks in the painting. Uh, uh, Fuentes, he uh, manages to spot that Wellington's done something really strange, is that he's put his extreme flank protection as a group of uh, Spanish guerrillas uh, in a village, and they are supported uh, by the 7th Division, uh, known as Wellington's Mongols. Uh, they're, in, they're kind of a uh, quite a loose bunch of uh, various troops, uh, 60th Durham, uh, Chasseurs, Britannique, etc. And uh, there's some dead ground. It's not big countryside. It's quite open. Uh, but, you know, Messina does a cracking job of managing to get his cavalry up and into the uh, the partisans, into the 7th uh, Division, really quickly catching some of them in line. And uh, Wellington has to order the famous Light Division over in double time uh, to get them out. So they march over, get into square and um, march in square, which is really hard to do and like kind of uh, relieve um, the the 7th Division. And at one point, uh, these guns are left behind and that's the painting that we see on screen, uh, Ramsey's troop, and uh, they, they charge out uh, through the French cavalry, uh, sabres drawn. And, you know, it's a really close uh, battle. There's really furious fighting within the village itself. The village itself has got really tight stone walls. Uh, and if you go there today, not much has changed in 200 years. It really is this little sleepy Spanish hamlet. And um, 
it's it's a great place to see because it's so unspoilt but it's you know just little gentle rolling spanish countryside and within that uh Massino manages to to get his troops uh get the cavalry in and also force within the the towns or the village a close hand-to-hand fighting so he does really well there it is really close and wellington later says that if napoleon had been there himself uh he would have lost which actually i think is kind of unfair on uh massina you know how much once the battle's rolling forwards and the plan set does the general uh, make the hugest amount of difference uh and massina had a, a solid tactic you know it's a, a three-day fight it was a skirmish kind of fighting on the first day Valus on the second day third day this big action including cavalry and hand-to-hand bayonet fighting and uh, massina comes very close i think if he'd uh been a little bit quicker uh, as in like just timing is difficult um the seventh division would have been lost or the uh wellington hadn't spotted it quickly and sent over the light division uh, that would have turned the battle or you know hand-to-hand sit, uh, street fighting within the village itself uh that is man-on-man action so the commanders uh, make less difference within that element uh fuentes is you know an interesting one it is a british victory it is kind of by the end of the day quite a clear victory because massena has to uh pull back uh but there's some very close moments uh within it it's on this you see the map there it's on this kind of border between Ciudad rodrigo and Almeida, where we get a lot of uh fighting on those uh big countryside and they put a pin in the map there and you can visit quite a few sites and that's why uh so many battles took place and you know that was that was enough for uh, Napoleon. He doesn't he doesn't allow Massena another another go. What is what is his line when uh, he goes back to Paris then, John? Yeah, he uh, uh, before he left, Massena had been made Prince of Essling, which is the town he defended in uh, the Battle of Aspern Essling. And so when he returns, Napoleon first of all he makes him wait four hours before he'll see him, and then he finally sees Massena and says, "So, Prince of Essling, you are no longer Massena." Which is just a great yeah. dig Ooh, on like harsh yeah I yeah know. that is if that's your annual review with your boss you're... <laughs> that yeah. sounds a bit like mine to be fair yeah <laughs> well that's because you put your mistress to work <laughs> <laughs> yeah good point i did bring it on myself you're right <laughs> in, in fairness though he was not supported by um his brother marshal uh, bessier who was in charge of the imperial guard cavalry who Massena wanted to use to kind of ice the battle and and probably would have if if Bessier hadn't said no to the request. And then Massena also asked um, Bessier to go get, you know, resupply of ammunition, cannon, more cannonballs. Bessier again said no, said, I'm too busy. So again, the petty jealousies of the marshals uh, did not work very well here at Fuentes de Nora. Um, after that, basically Massena is kind of sidelined. Uh, Napoleon doesn't really give him a command again. He had some small like governorships of some towns in in uh, France, but um, yeah, he doesn't really have a command after that again. And he probably doesn't want to, he's got his millions of dollars. He just wants to retire in peace. He supports Napoleon after his escape from Elba, but again, he doesn't want to command. He just wants to sit quietly with his money. Unfortunately, he doesn't really get to enjoy it, um, his money, because he passes, I think in 1817, um, and just, he had a, he had a hard life. I mean, he, yeah, he made millions of dollars, but he was in the saddle a lot. He was on, um, fronts a lot. Obviously he lost an eye due to Napoleon. Um, he, he worked really hard 
over the course of his life in the military and definitely gave a lot to France. Brilliant. Well, well, look, I think that's good to, to wrap up Massena then. We will move on because yep. I know we've been going an hour and a half and we did say we'd try and keep it tight. So apologies for that, gents. But a couple of quick questions on Massena. Um, did he take Wellington too lightly? Was that part of his problem? He, he, he got into the peninsula, thought, you know what, I'm a bit knackered, as, we, as we've said, but uh, who's this Brit? The Brits are nothing. I've, I've been fighting much much more worthy opponents out east. Was there a little bit of that, do you think? I don't know. If... <laughs> oh, okay. um, yeah, I think probably. And I think uh, probably most of his marshals did that. And, uh, you know, it's famously quoted by Napoleon on the morning of the 18th of June, 1815. He looks around his room of marshals over breakfast whilst the, the Anglo-Allied army are formed up ready to fight. And, he said, and he's having breakfast with them. And he says... Oh, you take uh, Wellington seriously because he's been beating, uh, he's beating you before. I tell you, it'd be nothing more than finishing this meal. And I think a lot of them were turning up going, OK, our experience with the British during the Revolutionary War, they're holding on these towns for the French royalists and we're, we're beating them and we're throwing them out. And they've done these little expeditions across the coast and we're beating them and we're throwing them out. But actually, you know, it's, as we know, time and time again, the British... Uh, can be let down by allies, they can be let down by overextension, but often they're the thin red line, it's very stereotypical, pulls it out the bag even when they should be defeated. We said it earlier, you know, they should be defeated. The troops hold and Wellington, for many of his faults, he has a very good eye for ground and he's picking battlefields that suit his army and his Anglo, you know, allied army of Spanish and Portuguese. And, you know, he's moulding the Portuguese into an effective fighting force. The Spanish are now working with him, both on the battlefield and in politics and the guerrilla campaign. So that and, you know, we haven't talked about the guerrillas. You know, they wearing down the Spanish ulcer effect. They're wearing down these marshals uh, all the time when they're off the battlefield. They're being kind of drained of men. And that, that is also going to be mentally draining that they they can't send messages back to France without it being captured or the... Um, you know, the messengers being killed. So there's there's a lot of elements there that would demoralise these generals or distract them on campaign. Brilliant. I, th I think that's, that's, that's really good, actually. And that kind of sums up why it was so difficult to beat Wellington and the British in general, even when, when Wellington wasn't there in battle. But John, hmm. I wanted to follow up with you. We're, we're kind of getting close to wrapping up and hearing your both final thoughts on who you think was the best of these three marshals. But I wanted to ask one thing we haven't really discussed and maybe you can just give us a sense, John, is how difficult was it for the marshals with Napoleon trying to micromanage everything from Paris? Presumably that made things very, very tough for them. Yeah, I did. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, you know, Paris is far away from Portugal. You know, several took a long time for a messenger to get a, a horse from, say, Lisbon to Paris. And like Marcus said, you couldn't just send one guy because he would inevitably get caught by the guerrillas. And you couldn't even send a company because it would be overwhelmed by the guerrillas or a Spanish army lurking around. So you basically had to send a battalion of troops every time you wanted to get a message to France. Same thing with supplies. So if you needed food, ammunition, guns, horses, you had to send a battalion of troops to protect that supply convoy. So I don't think Napoleon fully understood how hard it was to operate in Spain. It was very hard to forage uh, as opposed to say Germany or Austria, where you could forage and live off the land. You couldn't do that in Spain and Portugal, especially with the uh, British 
and Portuguese burning and destroying all the crops as they retreated. So, yeah, I don't think, um, you know, Napoleon really set up any of these three guys for success. It was a, a very, very difficult place to campaign in. And then and my last think it helped. Oh, sorry, sorry, Marcus, go ahead, mate. Sorry, sorry. I was going to say, I, I was going to agree, you know, uh, I could talk about the, uh, the guerrilla war uh, for hours, but the, uh, the element is you see Napoleon hiring and firing. You know, they have a defeat. Do they get a chance to learn from it? Because they're replaced. So uh, if that carries on, they don't get that experience of fighting the guerrillas as much. Uh, we don't get, to, and that's why Suchet was mentioned a lot in the kind of the pre-chats because he's off in the east and actually has relative success there. And he's fighting quite a different campaign. Yet she tries to not this. This might be controversial, but not raping and pillaging a country makes them not hate you as much. Um, so uh, he manages to win rounds, and you get you get these Anfrancesados, which are uh, the middle classes from Spain who want to kind of bring in the revolution and work uh, with the French. And so he's doing that. And where some of the others, they come in, they have a campaign, they lose a battle, they're replaced. So that experience, uh, you know, is changing them. Where some of the men are out there fighting for, you know, nearly a decade and they're seeing the boss change a lot. And that doesn't give them a lot of reassurance either. So, uh, yeah, I think Napoleon's getting too involved. He's looking, he's, he's in the east and he's looking to the south and then he's kind of micromanaging away in Spain, whereas actually if he left it, it might have been yeah. different. Uh, just a quick example. I was reading uh, Marbeau's memoirs and he uh, operated in Spain. He worked for several marshals, General Mar Marbeau. And he said, whenever I had to deliver a message or do a supply convoy, I would go the route where there was an attack by guerrillas the day before. I would want to go that exact route because guerrillas, how they operated, they would attack and then run away and then, you know, go to another area to operate. Now, if you're not an experienced commander, you would think, well, there was an attack there the day before. I'm not going to go that way. I'm going to go some other route. Right. Mar Marbeau knew from operating there that, you know, I'll go wherever there was a, an attack the day before because the guerrillas won't be there. Yeah. Yeah. And All right. We were talking so, about it before, you know, he sent three messengers to try to get through. Uh, actually, by the time we'd cracked the code, so by the point uh, we had a three times more likely uh, chance of, you know, capturing the the message. So it's that learning curve wasn't given. They weren't given that chance is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Well, guys, before we wrap up, before we get to our, our, our winner in inverted commas, I do have one last question. Maybe, John, you can sort of take this and then maybe, Marcus, if you've got any follow up to this. Um, the marshals, they all hated each other. We've kind of touched on this with Fuentes de Oñoro. They all hated each other. They all seemed to do everything they could to undermine one another. What's that all about? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think. I think that's a little overblown. I mean, that's an easy excuse. I don't think they all hated each other. I think they they probably all thought they were more talented than the others, except for Marshal Mortier, who was known as the kind marshal. Um, I don't I they 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 could work together. In, in fact, after Wellington defeated Marmont at Salamanca, Soult, Suchet, Jordan uh, actually united forces and actually pushed Wellington back into Portugal. So they could work together when there was an immediate threat to their existence. But after when things were quiet, that's when they would get selfish and get looting and kind of ignore each other. And whenever, of course, the boss was around Napoleon, 
it was a, a very well-oiled machine. I mean, they destroyed Prussia in a couple of weeks. Uh, they beat the Austrians how many times when Napoleon was around? So uh, they could work together. A lot of them did work together for many years. Um, I think the not working together is a bit overblown. But uh, in Spain, it, it is it is documented that there were some arguments and there were some um, lack of cooperation amongst the marshals. Brilliant. Well, look, we're getting to the point. We, oh, sorry, Marcus. Yeah, blame, go ahead. So Marcus. I was going to say, can we blame Napoleon for that? Um, <laughs> mostly because I want to. Uh, sure. But also uh, because, you know, he's handing out these titles. Uh, he's handing out wealth. He's handing out uh, palaces and basically countries, princedoms, uh, if they are successful. So if you're getting, you know, reward based upon success, you're wanting to outshine the others and write to your successes and build it up potentially is, is is one way I sometimes view it rather than go, look, it's kind of like, look, look, look what I did rather than kind of, oh, look, we all did a good job. And Napoleon, the marshals, that's great. <laughs> just that's great. That. I, like, I've never heard that before. Um, no, I mean, they are, there are some really competent commanders in there. So, um, yeah, I certainly like some of the marshals more than I like Napoleon. For <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Well, look, guys, I think we're going to wrap up. I want to hear. In fact, I'm gonna, I've, got a, I've got a perfect uh, sound effect for this. Hold on. Let me see if I can hear it. And at the end of this, as it finishes, John, I'd like you to name who you think was the best French marshal in the Peninsular War. Let's go for it. Oh, here it comes. Okay. The best French marshal in the Peninsular War was Marshal Massena. Yay! Um, Whoa! Hold on, hold on. I think we need a bit of. Uh... Oh, oh no! Wrong, wrong one. <laughs> there we go. There you are. There you are. And ah, oh, that's amazing. And I and I know people are going to disagree with me, but I, I am not a military tactician or expert. But Wellington himself said it that Massena was the best one, and. I'll just go with the Duke of Wellington for being my eyes and ears on the ground for, for that assessment. I will say Sult is number two and Marmont is number three. Uh, Marcus, what do you think? Yes, yeah, so if I can go slightly off menu, I'd probably actually say it is Suchet, but he doesn't face Wellington. Then Ney also, uh, he actually doesn't well, do too badly. Uh, and then and then I'll say uh, Marmont as well. So, um, Sorry, Massino as well. Sorry, getting oh too okay. many M's. Uh, Massino <laughs> as well. So um, it's late. Um, so yeah, I, I have to agree. You know, Massino and uh, the to to back it up, the the Duke of Wellington quote uh, was they well, there's two quotes. One says, "You kept me awake at night." Uh, he was kept awake at night by Massino, uh, but I couldn't find the original source for that. Uh, the original source that I've got was uh, Massino said. Uh, to Wellington, well, you owe me a meal when they met because he'd been starved outside of um, Portugal. <laughs> and Wellington says, no, you kept me um, in troubled time, so you owe me, you can buy me a meal instead, basically. So, uh, you know, there's that kind of like keeping him in angst, doesn't know where he's going to stand. So, like you said, Wellington's got those eyes on it and, and he thought it was uh, Massena. Uh, he also, you know, he doesn't underestimate uh, Ney and I'm kind of discounting Suchet because he's not facing Wellington directly. It's part of the wider campaign. So that's the technicality. We, we park him. Ney uh, is an interesting character and actually does quite well, but doesn't have that independent command uh, facing him as well. So, yeah, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back you up. Massena, uh, the champion tonight. 
Thanks. Bro. Fantastic. Well, I think that deserves one of these. I'm getting really carried away with these sound effects, aren't I? I I'm Excellent. quite enjoying yeah. this. <laughs> well, guys, can I just say thank you to both of you? I want to say thank you to everybody who's watched, commented, laughed at our silly jokes. I hope you've enjoyed well, my silly jokes, really. No one else has made silly jokes except me, but I've enjoyed it. <laughs> um, right, guys, so thank you very much. I just want to thank say... Ah, no, cheers, John. So, John, just quickly, no. for anyone who's just joining us now, tell them how they can see and listen and get in touch with you and watch your podcast and all that fun stuff. Yeah, so just the podcast is called Generals in Napoleon. Anywhere podcasts are heard, you know, Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify. And it's just each episode we focus on a different biography of a different general. And it's not just Napoleon's armies. We do British generals, Prussian generals, Russian generals, Spanish generals. So... If you're interested in the period and you want to learn about the different uh, army commanders, uh, we even do captains. Uh, I think uh, I was talking about doing some of Napoleon's families, brothers and sisters. We've done kings. So if you're interested in the period, uh, please check out Generals and Napoleon and follow us on Twitter at Anne Napoleon. Brilliant. And then Marcus, uh, the, the goat of British Peninsula War military history. Can you, can you, uh, oh, wrong one. Can you give us uh, a little bit of information about you and how people can get hold of you and keep in touch if they want to? That's, that's overly kind. Um, yeah, so I appear on other people's podcasts and things, uh, as we're saying. So I'm on Redcoat History Podcast. I'm on Generals and Napoleon. So check out uh, both of those ones. Both, uh, yeah, Spotify is a good one and uh, YouTube. And then uh, on Twitter as History. Uh, I have my own website, dukeofwellington.org. Uh, find me there. Find me any of those. Oh, I do have a Facebook thing, but I can't remember it. And happy to answer questions and hopefully see you on a podcast or speak to you about a battlefield tour in the future. Looking forward to getting back up to Waterloo soon.